Hi, we're back. Yes, it's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this is episode 65. Who'd have thunk it? And we are back. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we're back with another fun-packed, action-packed, suspenseful episode of The Film File. Andy, how have you been since we uh, we last did this show? Ooh, a mere a mere week ago. I, I I'm walking a lot. I I did I've been doing like ten kilometers walks oh, every day at the that. moment. And in Sheffield, ten kilometers more, feels more like forty kilometers because you're up and down hills constantly. My legs are killing me, so I'm taking a relaxing day today. So it's a good job that we're recording today. The only walk that I've got to do today down to the uh, pharmacy to pick up my medication. Because uh, they discovered what was wrong with me, and hopefully it's all going to be okay. You're not turning into a giant fly person. Uh, sadly, not. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, well, I was quite hopeful. <laughs> I was quite hopeful for that. Well, that's lost me off 2021 bingo. You do know that. Sorry about that. I've, I've failed <laughs> you there. I've let you down. Um, it, uh, yesterday on Twitter, someone posted out uh, what podcasts have kept you going during lockdown, and the genuine answer that I had to give was. It sounds quite sad, but my own, because yeah. this has been our lifeline each week. Our chats to each other have kept both of our spirits up, basically. It's yeah. been great to have this like couple of hours that we just have a general chat, and then I spend a couple more hours editing it down so that all you lovely listeners out there can get a bit that makes more sense. <laughs> and you are lovely. Just look at yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, ah, yes, Lee Ford's right. <laughs> I am lovely. Anyway, in this show, we have our deep dive of Michael Mann's Manhunter. Andy and I will be giving you our review, and spoiler, the rather wonderful Palm Springs. We'll be talking about uh, we'll be talking about the Falcon and Winter Soldier. And Andy has done the unmentionable. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but before all that, of course, in this segment, we always title the news, because we can't think of anything better. Andy has been scouring the interweb for news, views, posts, anything for this segment that is only called the news. So, well, everyone's still harping on about Justice League, aren't they? It's it's Are been they? weeks since it since it landed, and every media outlet is seeking interviews with everyone. Chris Terrible, I mean Terrio, has been taking every opportunity to talk about the mess of Justice League and how his script was changed. Fisher is still griping about something without specifics, something about them not being listened to when offering suggestions on their characters on set in the rushed reshoots. And Gal Gadot keeps getting hounded to share her experience, even though she, she keeps having to return to what she was saying in the first place, that her problems were dealt with in the right manner there and then. And that Ray has his own story that she knows nothing about, which sounds to me like she doesn't quite believe all the accusations being made, but she just wants to show support. But the hashtag legions still think there should be a, a Snyderverse going on, despite the fact, and this is where I'm getting to, the analysis figures for the film aren't as great as everyone hoped they'd be. Yes, well, I saw that. And, and hasn't it? Hasn't it come in at third place? And also there's some figures that it was only kind of half watched by people. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that none of these figures are from HBO Max or Warner Brothers themselves because they haven't released the figures. And no, all the hashtag lesions, this is not a conspiracy against the film. 
it is because they never released the streaming figures for anything. All streaming figures that we're going to refer to were all from third-party analyzers, and they all come from the same source, so you can assume that they're using the same measures. So it appears that it performed lower than other releases. You say third. If you take Tom and Jerry into the mix, makes it fourth. And a significant number of people stopped watching it before halfway through. And most importantly, didn't return to it because the initial argument when people said people stopped watching it, it's like, oh, that's because you can cut it into episodes. So people were going back. They didn't. That's the important thing. They got about two epi- two chunks, chapters into it and just decided, nah, that's it for me. This isn't worth watching. Reports that it broke records on services in Canada, etc., are more easily explained by the fact that the services that are reporting that aren't major services and so they never did great business anyway so to have something suddenly land that did business broke them some figures for you so wonder woman 84 turned over approximately 2.2 million viewers on hbo max over the first five days of release Zack snyder's justice league 1.8 million and then we get to the one which has smashed them both down like they've been smashing each other down godzilla versus kong 3.6 million over the five days wow Add on top of that that Godzilla vs. Kong is now just shy of $360 million on the worldwide box office, almost $70 million in the US itself, which people can watch it on HBO Max if they want, and $165 million from China. It clearly shows that there's demand for some kind of films from Warners, but not other ones. And why won't Warners continue with the Justice League or continue with the Snyderverse? Because it's not financially viable. Yeah, I mean, we've, we, I mean, we've done this to death. I mean, bring on the donkey and let's flog it one more time. But the people who really wanted the Justice League saw it in that opening day. Those were the fans, and that's what it was aimed at. Yeah. And there's, there's no point and, and no worries about it reaching its target audience. It did, and it did loudly, and for that, it was a triumph. And the problem is, and the problem I think there's, there's been with the majority of uh, of Zack Snyder's uh, 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 DC films is that it appeals to fans and it's not really broadened out to reach that wider audience because no one else was demanding this other than fans. Interestingly enough, you talk about Ray Fisher and I know, again, I, I'm going to give to charity every time Ray Fisher's mentioned. Um, it says he'll be a bummer if he can't return a cyborg in DCU's um, Flash movie and that's not looking likely to happen unless he, he gets a, a clean break from the powers that be. And also, interestingly, Joss Whedon's Nevers has done really, really well on HBO Max and, and had uh, fantastic figures. So that looks like it'll make a second season, albeit without Joss Whedon at the helm. So uh, interesting days, but it's, you know, this story hasn't got much more in the way of legs, surely, unless something shocking comes out, which... I, frankly, I'm, I'm I'm way over it. But talking of Zack Snyder... Well, yeah, I mean, let's move on to what dropped yesterday, which was um, the uh, zombie heist movie, Army of the Dead's new trailer. It looked very flashy, didn't it? It did. I mean, you get a good t- chance to see what to expect from the film with this trailer, because the last trailer was a bit more of a tease, whereas this one gives you some character development and it shows you... The first half of it is basically set up a heist movie a crew being recruited to pull off a heist of the century from the Las Vegas vaults. And then you go to Las Vegas and you meet the army of the dead. And it's not the brainless dead that we're so used to in zombie media, but it's an evolved fast and agile dead, similar to his Dawn of the Dead remake when he made them fast and agile. But now they're organized into, well, kind of an army of the dead. 
Uh, from the glimpses, it, it, it won me over. It looks great. It's got a marvellous visual style. It's nice to see that he's got a vibrant colour palette again and he's remembered how to turn the like contrast up. <laughs> and it appears to have a sense of fun about it. The zombie style, like I said, is a progression of his Dawn of the Dead remake, but it also seems to be tapping into those aspects of the latter Romero films when the dead was starting to gain intelligence. Yeah, I noticed One more that. month until we get to see it. And I, I'm on board with this. I'm this is what I wanted all along. I don't want the Snyderverse. I want the Zombieverse. Yeah, I mean, as I, as I said to you in a tweet, um, it looked good. It looked fun. Uh, it looked like it had a sense of humour. It, it didn't seem the the dourness that we had with uh, the last of the of, uh, Snyder's DCU films. I've gone down this road before with Zack Snyder and got very, very excited about a trailer and then the movie appears. But... Uh, and I'm not the cynical one out of the two of us. Of course, I will give it a go and I will judge it on the film. But I remember seeing the trailer for the 300 and thinking it looked amazing. And then I saw the film. Now, I know some people have a lot of love for the 300, but at the heart of it, it's a hollow film that just looks great for me. My worry is this will just look great. I'm of the opinion that I really enjoy 300 and I enjoy going back to it every now and then because it, it is more or less a frame-for-frame frame adaptation of the graphic novel, which was very visual but not really got much meat on it. And I really enjoyed Watchmen. So th this trailer for Army of the Dead reminded me of those early Zack Snyder films and that's the period of Zack Snyder's career that I really enjoyed. So I'm hoping that this is a return to that era and that we'll get to see Zach move off in these directions. So hashtag army, please leave Zach alone. Let him develop other things, because it looks like he's going to knock this one out of the park. Indeed. So we have some news uh, about Chris McKay directing Renfield for Universal. Yes, I read this this morning. Um, he, Chris McKay, who gave us the Lego Batman movie. Um, he's in talks to direct the Renfield movie, like you say. The story going to focus on the character of Renfield, who, as people in the know will know, is the vampire Dracula's uh, human minion that he gets to do his bidding. An inmate in a lunatic asylum who is under the influence of a vampire. The script is being written by Ryan Ridley, who is one of the writers on Rick and Morty. So with Chris McKay and Ryan Ridley involved, you kind of get the feeling it's going to have a bit of a tongue-in-cheek approach to it. And the story idea is an original pitch from none other that we've just been talking about, The Living Dead, uh, Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman. So this intrigues me. I remember Dexter Fletcher being connected. To he was, movie. yeah. He, back a couple of years back. We're not sure why he left, but yeah, he was previously attached to it. In, I'm interested to see where this is going to go. I'm not normally one who latches onto this, let's spin off a character who didn't really do much in a story and make them into their own film. But this sounds like it might have something, something a bit more intriguing behind it. I do like Robert Kirkman's ideas. I do think he can come up with some creative things. One to watch, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this whole new run of Universal uh, uh, characters. We had the Invisible Man, of course. James Wan's producing a new Van Helsing. There's the Wolfman. And also, you know, we're talking about Chris McKay. I mean, I think the Lego Batman movie is superb. Yeah. I think it's one of the best Batman movies. If it had been if it had been live action and, and they toned down the humour, it could have been a great Batman movie. Yeah, uh, but he did um, a movie called The Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt, which is a sci-fi film, which I know is going to Amazon in July, second of July. You know, um, it's always interesting. I know one would have thought that Brad Bird would have made a Mission Impossible film, but 
Yeah. We talked about that last week. Moving on to Joe Cornish, who the cool kids who grew up through the 90s will know as that bloke from the Adam and Joe show, but everyone else also knows as the writer and director who's worked on loads of films, including Attack the Block, Kid Who Would Be King. Well, he signed up, and we spoke about this comic book only a few weeks ago. Mark Miller's Starlight is getting a film adaptation. Yeah, there was a whole there was a whole bunch of, uh, of Mark Miller films that was supposed to happen. Uh, he signed an exclusive. Of course, he did Kick-Ass, Kingsman, Jupiter Legacy, which is due on Netflix. They were supposed to do his film uh, Nemesis, but that didn't happen. But Starlight has been mentioned on more than one occasion, which is a, a kind of a play. And this is what Mark Miller does all the time. Uh, it's a kind of a play on Flash Gordon, isn't it? Yes. It, it explores a Flash Gordon-esque hero called Duke McQueen, who, after saving the world decades previously, returned home to find that nobody believed his story and he was a he was a, a laughing stock of the world. Um, he settled down with a family, but then the ageing hero was called back to adventure when his old rocket mysteriously turned up. And it was... I mean, for those who can remember comic books of the early 90s, when there was the Revolver or something did... Uh, a new modern version of Dan Durr with Dan Durr as an aging. That's right. Yeah. And that. like doing one final battle with the Mekon. Well, this starlight did a similar kind of approach. It took what would have been like a, a flash Gordon character, but made him old and had him reflecting on his heroics while being thrust into a new adventure. And it was a marvellous... I think it's one of the most mature titles that Miller's ever written. I mean, Miller is known for shock factor. He's known for pushing the boundaries. And whilst Jupiter's legacy still has a mature theme, it still does push every now and then. Whereas this just felt like a solid story. So I'm, I'm well up for this. And Joe Cornish gets my thumbs up on adapting this to the screen. Now, we mentioned this when we reviewed uh, Godzilla and King Kong. And I said Skull Island was, was a fantastic film and very layered. And even though I've not got round yet to seeing uh, Godzilla and King versus King Kong, but Jordan Vogt Roberts uh, looks like he's directing a live action Gundam movie that's going straight to Netflix. Having no interest or idea about Gundam, are you excited about this, Andy? Is this in your ballpark? I've never latched onto the whole Gundam thing. Uh, I know it's it, it's big mecha suits, battle wars, raw Japanese manga and anime. And whilst I like my Japanese manga and anime, there's far too many of those kind of ones that Gundam just kind of just went to the sidelines for me. I've heard good things about the storyline of it, the same way that I hear people saying that the Dragon Ball Z has a great storyline. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not excited at this point in time, but maybe when the trailer drops, it might just make me go, you know what, that looks great. Because let's be honest, Pacific Rim was a bit brainless fodder. But as soon as you saw the trailer with giant big mechas smacking down things, you just went, I've got to see this. I have to see this. So maybe Gundam's going to tap into that kind of feel. You don't have to be a fan of Gundam to appreciate big mecha smacking down monsters. I'm wondering now is a percentage of our audience going, what the heck is a Gundam? <laughs> but we'll leave that with you to do, you know, just go to Wiki. I have no idea. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to talk about percentages of the audience going like, what are they on about? Let's talk about the fact that the new revamped theme for the Immortals Techno Syndrome from Mortal Kombat has been released. Composer Benjamin Walfish put a new spin on the iconic theme and boy, it's a belter. It's in every playlist that I am listening to at the moment. 
<laughs> oh, that that brought out your inner, inner geekness in a way that I've not heard for some oh, time. Oh, man, it's great. I mean, it's it's just got a bit more of like a techno beat to it than what Techno Syndrome had. It's entirely familiar, but has its own dynamic energy to it. And it pays homage to the old version. And you've still got all the test your might, finish hymns all across the whole thing. I love it. This This, this film... This film would better deliver, otherwise I'm going to be heartbroken. <laughs> you know, Mortal Kombat was one of the very first computer games, uh, home computer games that I got. That and oh, Streets of Rage. Oh, there's a classic. Streets of Rage would make a, an interesting movie. That, that's been pitched around a few times, but never got off the ground. Yeah, I think it could work. It could certainly work. So Natalie Portman, after she's done with Thor, Love and Thunder, is moving on to star in Days of Abandonment. And Ryan Gosling is to star in Duke Johnson's The Actor, another film that we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago. Another casting news, Lucy Liu has joined uh, the Shazam sequel, Shazam yeah. Fury of the Gods, are playing a character who I don't think is from the comics. I'm not as familiar with the Shazam comics as with other titles so he only knows some aspects i'm not sure if this character has been in the comics but it's one of the gods and it's drawing upon pantheons of gods in order to tell the tale this time around but i, I as soon as i read the news for the lucy lou i was like lucy lou shazam too it rhymes like it <laughs> the same with helen mirren being announced as a character who's who's not from the comics keanu reeves is getting ready for production to start on john wick 2 okay that's good to know yep filming will begin in june and is going to pick up the story from where it left off in the third film with wick aiming to bring about plans to strike back at the high table it's going to be more of the same it's going to be some groovy action and uh, some thrilling chases i imagine yeah looking forward to that at the one. same time it's release date shuffle time again this time Paramount are into the mix. So, news dropped this week that Top Gun Maverick has flown from November the 19th, leaving July the 2nd way behind. Mission Impossible 7, as a result, has left 2021 entirely and will now self-destruct on May the 27th, 2022. And Mission Impossible 8 will now shift to July 2023. The Dungeons & Dragons movie, for the four people who were interested, has moved from May 2022 to March 2023. <laughs> uh, there are some shuffles the other way. Those waiting to see the G.I. Joe Snake Eyes film, because that's going to be huge, isn't it, can get excited as it's landing three months early now on July the 23rd. There are 25 people listening to that who just went, wow. A new Star Trek film has also been added to the slate to be released in June 2023. But which version of Star Trek it's going to be is uncertain right now. And I know that you're looking forward to this, but there's a Jackass revival, <laughs> uh, which will arrive a month later on October the 22nd. The Bee Gees film has November the 4th, 2022 marked, and The Forever Purge will land on July the 2nd this year, with Hotel Transylvania following it on July the 23rd. Uh, we've talked about this a few times. Has there been an announcement yet for this new Indiana Jones movie? Because they've just announced that... Phoebe Waller-Bridge has has joined the cast. Uh, we know it's not being directed by Spielberg, but is that has that been given any kind of uh, significant release date yet? No significant release date yet. Um, like you say, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has been cast alongside Harrison Ford for it. it in, in what most reports have referred to, a long-awaited sequel. Come on. We all remember the last film. No one's been waiting for this sequel. The addition of James Mangold as the director is the hope that we have that this film will turn out anything half decent. And Waller Bridge being added at least gives it some further appeal. Mangold himself said in a statement, I'm thrilled to be starting a new adventure, collaborating with a dream team of all-time great filmmakers. Stephen, Harrison, Kathy, Frank and John are all artistic heroes of mine. 
When you add in Phoebe, a dazzling actor, brilliant creative voice, the chemistry she will undoubtedly bring to our set, I can't help but feel as lucky as Indiana Jones himself. So he's he's thrilled and he's enthused. We don't have any release dates. We don't have any full production details at this point in time. But it's nice to know that the, the paying good attention to getting some decent casting done this time. And it almost feels like it's an apology for uh indiana jones 4 doesn't it to a degree let's make one last one that we can go out with that everybody loves with a bit of luck they they really need to apologize they need to be at my doorstep begging for forgiveness <laughs> uh, before i get excited on this one yeah I, i'm trying not to get excited because i did it last time with crystal skull and that was a huge disappointment and even revisits when taken away from all the buzz and hysteria around it, it doesn't work as a film. It's not a good film. Maybe Mangold can bring something to it. Lucas isn't involved this time, so that's a benefit because it was clear on Crystal Skull that George Lucas was pulling all the strings and Spielberg was just a puppet. And talking to Spielberg, uh, we talked about his, uh, his next film. That's his next film after West Side Story, which is still looking for release this year. Uh, and we've been talking about this Spielberg film, which is a kind of an interpretation of his childhood. Anyway, Paul Dano yeah. has joined the, the film, um, and I believe he's playing the young Spielberg's father in this. Yes, I, I read up on this one. and uh, Yeah, it, this this sounds like an intriguing film. This, Like you say, it's, been, it's going to draw from his own personal experiences growing up. And I love that kind of approach when a director tackles their own life and shows you the reflections which led them to where they were. And the casting is so far is is really coming along well. So this is one that we will be keeping reporting on and we'll be keeping a look into because, let's be honest, in recent years, Spielberg's let himself down with things like Ready Player One and he's gone a bit too visual style and forgotten about getting the heart and emotion. This is going to be Spielberg tapping the heart again. Yeah. I was just going to mention there's some sad news this week that... Uh, the Arclight and Pacific cinemas in the US are closing their doors. Yeah, for good. I saw that. Saw that. As a result of the substantial impact the pandemic lockdown had, one of the smaller chains, they were also one of the most beloved. They had over 300 screens across California, including the famed Cinerama Dome in Sorry. Hollywood. And there's been an outcry from pretty much everyone within the profession, like saying, what a sad loss this is and this is this is why cinemas should have been supported from day one with funding and ways to keep them open this was going to happen at some point someone was going to take the fall it's a shame that it has to be an iconic chain yeah yeah i mean it's been hit with it i mean we've been worrying about it for for over nearly over a year now and um you know we were waiting for that Hopefully not a domino effect, but we're waiting for the first fall. Um, in slightly yeah. better news, um, and a film that I'm really looking forward to for, for many reasons, but Chloe Zhao has been named Best Director for uh, Nomadland by the DGA and the DGA Awards. And we're getting that on streaming, aren't we? We're getting that on Disney Plus um, next month. Uh, it's the end of this month. It's literally the week after the Oscars. So we don't get a chance to watch it before the Oscars, which is a shame because I'm doing well with my Oscar run through. I'm ticking a lot of those boxes now. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. There's so much buzz and excitement. I'm trying to avoid any talk about it. I'm just going to try to go in when it lands, watch it with an open mind. But that is getting harder and harder. And I always sit up on Oscars night to watch the awards and I get a feeling that some things might get spoiled as a result. Uh, and of course, uh, and, uh, we failed to mention it, but the BAFTA 2021 winners uh, and Nomadland played big 
at the BAFTAs, didn't it, this year? It did, yes. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty much the one that all the bookies have the good money riding on, is that if you if you want to place your bet, you're not going to get much back if you place anything on Nomadland, but it's pretty much a safe bet. Do an accumulator if you want to go for it. I'm not going to condone gambling, but do an accumulator if you do that kind of thing and put Nomadland in most of the top categories because you're in with a good chance. Yeah, because it proved again that this this new drama uh, won Best Feature, Best Director for Zayo, Leading Actress for Frances McDormand and Cinematography. Anthony Hopkins at the BAFTAs uh, won Leading Actor for The Father, though I think the money initially was on uh, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah. Uh, best Adapted Screenplay for director Zorian uh, Zeller and co-writer Christy Hampton. Promising Young Woman took original screenplay and outstanding British film. Why Minari's Yu Zhang Yao scored yet another supporting actress trophy and gave um, quite a fun speech if you got a chance to uh, to see it. Uh, and we can't forget the Triumph uh, Rocks, while the London set teen movie didn't sweep the awards. Bucky Bakray won this year's BAFTA for Rising Star and following her performance as the uh, young woman and Lucy Party took best casting. So that's your BAFTA news for this year. And let's round off the news this week with the story that Netflix and Sony have secured a major deal which gives the streaming service exclusive first-run access to their upcoming releases beginning in 2022. So, films like Morbius, Uncharted, the Spider-Verse sequel, they're just starters that Netflix will have an exclusivity on. Basically, the deals usually give a service 18 months exclusivity, which means that once the films finish their theatre and premium video-on-demand rental period, they go to that service and no one else gets access to them. So no Sky won't be able to show it for free. It'll only be a paid rental on Sky while Netflix are covering it. Netflix will also get access to Sony's back catalogue from Columbia Pictures, Sony Pictures, TriStar and Screen Gems. And part of the deal also means that Netflix will commit to financing some projects for Sony, some for theatrical release. So it's a really big score for Netflix yeah, to get absolutely. this deal. Every studio seems to be setting up their own little service, but Sony have decided, well, there's already services out there. Let's do a deal with one of them. And they picked, let's be honest, Netflix, are the biggest service. Well, we talked about this last week, didn't we? And we said with the ever-expanding field of streaming services, with every studio now deciding, as you just said, to have their own uh, uh, streaming network, something eventually will have to give. And it looks like Sony have seen that and just thought, you know what, let's just join it with Netflix. So, I mean, that's great news for people who subscribe to Netflix, because that's going to give a wealth of a back catalogue to drop on the service next year. And that was the news. If you're enjoying the film file, then please hit the subscribe button, because every time you do subscribe, Stephen King writes a new novel, and there's a film adaptation coming just around the corner. You can find us if you want to contact us on all sorts of different services, which Andy will now tell you. So over on Twitter, at Filmfile UK, on Instagram, Filmfile UK. You can even email us with any thoughts, suggestions, films that you want us to deep dive on. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. You'd be, you'd be foolish not to stick around with the film file because A, it's enjoyable and B, we know where you live. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so this week we are doing a deep dive into the 1986 psychological thriller written and directed by Michael Mann, based on the 1981 novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. It starred William Peterson as FBI profiler Will Graham and the legend 
starts here. We're talking about Manhunter. Intruder entered through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI. One killer. This is what the subject's teeth look like. Have you ever seen blood on the moon like that? William, you're gonna make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One hunter. I'm gonna find you, damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Man under. And when I say the legend started because the film focused on the coming out of retirement of the character Graham to lend his talents to the investigation on uh, a killer known as the Tooth Fairy. And in doing so, he confronted the demons of his past and in a spectacular scene, played spectacularly by the actor Brian Cox, there was a face-to-face meeting with a screen villain that, well, basically became legendary. And that was Lecter. Uh, and a character that Graham, who was really nearly among his victims. Now, yes, you're probably thinking this sounds a little bit familiar. It was indeed remade as Red Dragon uh, several years ago, with Anthony Hopkins back in the role of Hannibal Lecter, of course, and Edward Norton playing the role of Will Graham. But in many ways, this film is far superior to the Brett Ratner remake. A, because it's directed by Michael Mann. Secondly, that it has probably the best screen interpretation of uh, Hannibal Lecter. And thirdly, it's not just a damn good thriller. It is incredibly intense. A film that I later saw in the cinema, but originally saw on home video, I had to stop watching halfway through to chill out. I thought it was that intense. I adore this film and put it in one of the best thrillers of all time. I'm with you entirely on this. Uh, This was a VHS rental for me, with one of my mates, must have been about 1990, because the film didn't see a UK release until 1989, three years after its US release, due to internal issues, uh, De Laurentiis. So when we rented this off the shelf, it was literally just being picked up as a, oh, well, that's new in. Uh, Michael Mann, where do I recognise that name from? Oh, wasn't he one of the guys behind that Miami Vice series that we liked? Yeah, let's give this a watch. Oh, this was so different to Miami Vice. This was not what, what I was expecting. But boy, it we must have watched it three or four times before we had to return it the following evening at the rental store. I mean, remember the days of VHS renting? Remember when I do, you, ha- you I had do. you had twenty four hours to watch it as much as you could? And <laughs> how did you ever wear out any tape because you loved something so much? <laughs> there was a couple. I always went with the person who had no idea about the films that they were choosing, and I would always have to try and push them in a direction to say. <laughs> I I believe this is a good film from what I've heard. And I think this was one of those occasions. I remember seeing this film very, very clearly the first time. And it stayed with me and and has become an undeniable classic. You can see where Michael Mann, who'd previously made the film Thief, which is also well worth watching. But you can see where he took those elements from working on Miami Vice uh, and, and brought them. There's a, an incredible visual style that gives it a, a look that's, that's that's all of its own. And 
uh, and really set Michael Mann up as being uh, not only a great feature director, but uh, a, a, an interesting storyteller. He's one of those storytellers that, that has a lot of flash, but he always backs it up with substance. Um, this is incredible. And, and we can't go through without talking about the introduction to, to Lecter because this was the, the first screen appearance. And as I said at yeah. the get-go, this is my favourite interpretation of, of Lecter, played by Scottish actor Brian Cox, who was quite unknown, really, at that particular time. Uh, done some small parts, done a lot of theatre. And he apparently based his performance on a Scottish serial killer called Peter Manuel. And, and he plays Lecter in, in almost the opposite of, of Anthony Hopkins. He plays him as, as a human yeah. being, and that's what makes him terrifying. There's, there's still the charm, but there's there's the fact that he's a monster in a human skin as opposed to almost, and this always let Silence of the Lambs down for me, that he played him as a villain uh, all the way through. He played him as inhuman, and, and, and Cox doesn't do that. Hopkins played him in a, in a pantomime fashion, and, and but Cox made yeah. him terrifying because he's human. It's one of the things that whenever people say that Hopkins was marvellous as Lecter, I'm always... Was he though? He's theatrical. He's stirring eyes and exaggerated mannerisms and exaggerated speech, which makes you feel uneasy watching it. But it makes you then, if you use your brain and think back and go, how did no one ever know that he was a nutter? Because he clearly comes across as a nutter. And that's the problem that I have always had with Hopkins is his character is clearly insane. Whereas at the introduction to Cox's version, he's, there's no statuesque standing in a, in a, plastic cell no when we meet him he's just lying on his bunk before slowly turning and rising rubs his eyes and he's just acting normal and his mundane conversation is played so calmly but there's a chilling edge to it it's mundane talk with an old friend but you can just about detect the psycho hiding underneath biding time before he can strike the exterior is putting on the performance to make him fit in not stand out, and that's the difference. This Lecter puts on an act to make him seem human. Hopkins's Lecter puts on an act to make him seem more than human. And that's why he gets under William Peterson's uh, Graham's skin, isn't it? Because that's why he's terrifying. Because there is, there's always something working behind the eyes with, with Brian Cox. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's pushing buttons, and he's pushing buttons in a way that, that, again, makes him more chilling, makes him more terrifying. It's it's a fantastic performance. Uh, and as, as I said, that made it difficult for me going into Silence of the Lambs because Cox's performance is so terrifying because he's the guy that if he was in the street, you wouldn't think of as, a, as a psycho killer. And yet Hopkins, you'd be terrified from the minute that, that you met him. The killer in this tale, this tale, though, is not Lecter, even though he does manipulate events to put Will Graham in danger and Will Graham's family in danger. That phone call sequence is a perfect Lecter moment. His mannerisms on the phone chatting to people is the true expression of how manipulative he can be by just being normal. But anyway, the true villain in this film is Dollarhide and the casting of Tom Noonan. Man, that is just such great casting. He's physically fit. He beefed himself up for the role. But he's also sometimes a sympathetic character. You can't help but feel sorry for him through some moments in the film. He's an outsider, rejected by society due to his nature and appearance, believing himself not worthy of love, but preparing for his transformation into something greater. And when he forms the bond with his blind co-worker Reba, that 
part of the film and part of the story gives us a chance to see what Dollarhide could have been if he wasn't insecure and, you know, insane. Um, but insane he is, and his jealousy and fear of rejection swiftly sets him as a threat once more. That section of the film made me hope that Dollarhide could, could, you know, change. He could become a better person. Absolutely marvellously played. And you can't help but feel that Tom Noonan made that character so much more than what it would have just basically been on paper. Yeah, I mean, his his, his dollar hide is an Im- imposing character. I mean, Tom Noonan is a huge guy, but it, in preparation for the role, he studied uh, other serial killers. He beefed up, as you said. He was working out on set, doing, doing push-ups before each take. He's an imposing, frightening figure. Yeah, when Ray Fiennes played the role in Red Dragon, he didn't have that same presence Ray Fiennes was just Ray Fiennes and he didn't have the same subdued menace, but also sympathetic exterior. So that, the Red Dragon film failed completely as far as I was concerned. It was so poorly cast and it was just more playing on a let's get Hopkins back in the role again, rather than actually having a reason to exist. Whereas Manhunter, Manhunter is just a genuine gem. Every time I go back to it, I find myself loving it all over again. I have never tired of anything in this film, and I watch from start to finish. This film also introduced me, and it needs to be mentioned, the magnificent 17-minute version of Iron Butterflies in Agada de Vida. This has become the soundtrack of my life. I love that whole... This is a, this is a song. This is a rock song that has a five-minute drum solo halfway through it. That's how extravagant it is. And it's used beautifully towards the closing act of the film as the tracking down where Reba's being held by Dollar Hyde and Graham going in. And this film uses it with one of the best needle drops that have ever been put on film ever as he crashes through the windows and it ramps up with a... absolutely magnificent and this is what man managed to do in his days of producing Miami Vice and also has done with subsequent films that he knows when to use music to really impact and you're saying that as soon as you said that it reminded me of uh, Phil Collins in the very first Miami Vice pilot and how that was used and how that took that song I think it was in the air tonight into uh, yeah into into the stratosphere took it into something else i mean this film did very poorly when it came out it was a, considered a, a box office failure there was arguments over the fact that it was retitled um, manhunter instead of the the title of red dragon some say it was because of it might have been associated with a, a with a kung fu film um and to some extent it got overshadowed tremendously by silence of the lambs and that's nothing to take away from silence of the lambs I think Will Peterson was uh, William Peterson was fantastic. Probably better known now for uh, CSI, but he went to star. And we should talk about this film one day uh, to live and die in LA, which is a fantastic film. Uh, Dennis Farina, who was always on call for Michael Mann, played Jack Crawford, uh, Kim Greist, and uh, Joan Allen, and Stephen Lang as the uh, reporter who meets the most awful, chilling death. Which again is seems subdued yes. in the subdued in, 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 in Red Dragon, which is, is one of those screen moments which is absolutely, absolutely terrifying uh, how it's played out in that. It it is a, a, a brilliant thriller. It, it is intense. Uh, the only thing I think that dates it, and apart from 
the track that you mentioned is it has a, a an 80s soundtrack in in some of the other parts and and that just is one of those elements and probably maybe the the color palette that michael mann uses kind of fits into uh into the time and evokes the 80s for me but it is a tremendous film it set michael mann up as a as an incredibly visual director and went on to do things like heat and and, and ali but this will always be my favorite um, michael mann film i know he's gone back to it and made some adjustments so i don't know which version you've watched recently and i don't know what elements have been changed and i hope it's something that's not taken away any of the um any of the impact of, of this movie as i said when i first watched it I had to put it down because I, th I thought it was so intense. I've just got to give a call out to to Hannibal, the TV series from a few years ago, which was uh, produced by Brian Fuller. This was about as close to uh, Red Dragon as we we've seen, and again the second best interpretation of Hannibal Lecter with Mads Mikkelsen in the role. Again, proving that the more human you make the character. Uh, the more charming, the more terrifying Hannibal Lecter is. Yeah, with the TV series, it was always interesting to me with the TV series that it was clearly inspired by Manhunter as opposed to any of the Hopkins era of Hannibal Lecter stories because Mads Mikkelsen plays Lecter as the normal, charming person with the hidden demons inside. He doesn't play for the theatrics. He's very down-to-earth. And particularly the casting of Will Graham. Hugh Dancy is playing Peterson's version of Will Graham. Yes. That, that's what made the series work for me. I latched onto the series, and it's a shame that we never got that fourth season. It, they got cancelled before its time. It didn't get a chance to fully tell its story. But, man, I will. That, that's another Hannibal Lecter thing that I'll happily go back to. I will always go back to Manhunter. I will always go back to the Hannibal TV series. I can take or leave any of the Anthony Hopkins era. And let's not even mention Hannibal Rising. Let's just move on from that entirely. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I kind of forgot that that one existed. <laughs> so that's Manhunter. If you've not had a chance to ever see it, shame on you. You should dig it out right now. Andy, is it playing on any streaming services? I believe I caught it on Sky Movies. So there you go. There's no excuse for you to miss Manhunter. Okay, so we've not been in the cinema the last few weeks but that's not meant that we can't review films that are popping up all over the place weekly in fact on streaming services and the film we're going to talk about first is a film that andy and i have been excited for for we say a year yeah a good year since it got released in the u.s even before it got released we were hyped for this film and wanted to know when it was going to get a uk release date but it's finally here and it landed on amazon and it's a film called palm springs and it's a film called Palm Springs. And it's a film called Palm Springs. <laughs> That's my title. I see what you did there. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful wedding. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You, what is going on? Hey, get out of the water, girl! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. The second you fall asleep, it all just goes back to the start. I drove all the way back home to Austin, and I still woke up here. One time I smoked a bunch of crystal and made it all the way to Equatorial Guinea. It was a huge waste of time. 
Well, then what's the point of living? We kind of have no choice but to live. No, I'm going to get out of this. Suit yourself. See you tomorrow. In Palm Springs, Andy Samberg plays Niles who we start the film following as he wakes on the day of a wedding that he clearly doesn't seem to be want to get want to be a guest of. As he drifts through the day and we drift through the day's events with him, he ends up delivering a touching speech for the couple out of nowhere and gets chatting as a result with Sarah, played by Kristen Melotti, the drunken sister of the bride. However, it swiftly becomes clear that there's more to Niall's loathing of the wedding than just disinterest. He has been celebrating it for quite a long time because he's stuck in a time loop forced to relive the same day over and over again in a Groundhog Day style. Unfortunately for Sarah, he accidentally exposes her to the curse, and she finds herself sharing that day over and over with him. As is a third party, Roy, who is randomly taking pleasure in trying to kill Niles. Palm Springs for me, genuinely funny, charming, engaging, well-crafted, and one of the finest examples of the time loop subgenre that is all the rage right now. I mean, this is everywhere. This this subgenre of like everyone's suddenly gone, Groundhog Day came out 20 years ago. Can we just remake that in different formats? But I'm all for it if they keep delivering things like this. There's also a short film on Netflix at the moment called Two Distant Strangers, which is worth checking out because that uses a time loop aspect. But Palm Springs, I'm a big fan of Andy Samberg. I think he's got a likable charm. I think he's got a natural comedy. And I think his chemistry with the cast around him in pretty much everything that he does, everyone clearly enjoys working with him. And you can tell that because everything always works on screen when he's there. How did you find Palm Springs? I, I, I'm going to agree entirely with everything you said. I thought it was absolutely, absolutely adorable. There was a, a, a the first 10 minutes and I, I'd read the hype and I'd read all the great reviews for it and, and, and how this was almost a, a pitch perfect movie. And for the first 10 minutes, I was waiting for this to land. Uh, and to some extent, I would I'd really enjoyed the film that you recommended, A Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which, again, is another time loop movie. And, and so I was comparing to that. And for, for a certain point, I was enjoying that much more. And then you've got Kristen Milotti appearing and who just is not only a, a, a vibrant screen presence, she brings the character of Niles alive, but she brings the film alive and takes it to that level where it suddenly becomes uh, an absolute, um, an absolute classic and pitch perfect film. I loved it. It, it kept me guessing. It had moments of, of pathos. It had uh, uh, laugh out loud moments. It had moments of, that were kind of strange and trippy. Uh, the dinosaur sequence, for instance, uh, it had J.K. Yep. Simmons, which is always something that, that that will attract me to any film. I, I think really is my favourite actor at the moment. <laughs> the backstory when Niles is saying about the first time that I met Roy, I spent a night with him, and it goes through all the events of that night. That is a standout moment of J.K. Simmons really pulling out every trick that he can do to have so much fun. And... I could watch that little five-minute segment over and over again and still laugh constantly at their activities. And, and that's the thing about this film. If it was just just a, a pure comedy, if it was just funny, that would be great. But it, but it's not. It's got those all those other elements. Some of them that you touched in, in Groundhog Day, you know, the sort of philosophical territory that it, it drifts into. It, it's sometimes bleak. And, and the fact that, that being in this time loop 
makes you just give up on on wanting anything and wanting life. And, and Niles does that. And he's, he's been there longer than he can remember. In fact, there's a point where he can't even remember what job he used to do. But it, it's it's that relation between Niles and Sarah that, that not only gives it heart, but takes it into in, into a, a, a another dimension. Sambo is great. It's nice to see him do something quieter. And it's taken its time to get here, but it's it's just well worth the wait. It's familiar, except it's 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 weirder. It's it's a classic film based around now kind of classic themes. And I think there's a reason for time loop movies, and that's the the pandemic. We all feel as though we're stuck in some kind of a um, some kind of a time loop. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely adored it. I'm going to give it some time, but I am going to go back to it and watch it again because I think it absolutely deserves to be seen again and again like a time loop itself yeah totally agree i think when when you said that the, the uh, map of tiny perfect things for you started off better i think it's because with map of tiny perfect things we're introduced at the start with someone who's lived the time loop so many times that he's enjoying every aspect of it he's he's in the rhythm he's having fun with it he's like fixing things that should and so you you get that opening of like this is an enjoyable character whereas this film starts off with Andy Samberg clearly bored senseless and it's a different start but it's it needs that one so that he can become he can come more to life as the film progresses like you say when he meets Kristen Milotti as Sarah that's when he comes to life and that's when the film properly comes to life absolutely enjoyable I will be re-watching it myself and this is this is probably going to be one of my favourite return tos, along with pretty much everything else Andy Samberg ever delivered. Fantastic. Uh, what else have you got, Andy? Because uh, as usual, I've been a bit lapsed. Uh, there's a couple of films that I do want to really do want to see. One of them being Sound of Metal, and uh, one that um, I, I think you took a bullet for us for how brave you are to actually have, have watched this film. I've got three films to quickly go through and I'm going to put the worst one in the middle in what is notoriously known as a shit sandwich. Uh, so let's start with Sound of Metal because you've said that you really want to watch it. Riz Ahmed as a drummer called Ruben in a metal band who begins to lose his hearing. With a history of drug addiction, the shock revelation risks sending him back to a spiral of abuse. Along with the lead singer Lou, played marvellously by Olivia Cook, his partner with a history of abuse and depression. Lou helps find him a deaf retreat commune where he can learn to live his new life without his hearing. But to complete the program, he must enter the facility alone, which gives him a big life decision as to whether he can go through it. Riz Ahmed is a tour de force in this film, and the events are emotional and hard-hitting and gripping without ever feeling overplayed. The sound mix and the dropped muffled noises to replicate Ruben's perception really drop you, the audience, into the world. And importantly, there's no subtitles present until Ruben begins to understand sign language, which makes us, the audience, as lost in the silence as he is. We're struggling to hear what people are saying at the same time that he's struggling. And that makes it perfect. It's a marvellous film. It's a powerful film. It's moving. It's touching. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. That landed on Amazon this week. And now the film that you took the bullet for. Yeah. So on Netflix... There's a film called Thunder Force. A cosmic event leads to a section of humanity being granted powers, but only bad people who are known as miscreants. And they are running amok and just robbing banks, murdering people, whatever. Enter scientist Emily Stanton, played by Octavia Spencer, who is so much better than this film, who has just reconnected with an old school friend, Lydia, played by Melissa McCarthy, who is just exactly the right person for this kind of film. 
The pair end up being treated with a new process to bring on powers and become a fighting team of heroes. And boy, that sounds better than what the end result is. <laughs> it's directed and written by Ben Falcone, who is McCarthy's real-life husband, who also gave us such greats, greats, as Tammy, the boss, life of the party. And he also executive produced that excellent film, Happy Time Murders. You know where you're going with this one. This is another mediocre excuse to insist that his wife is funny. He plays with the tropes of the genre, thinking he's being clever, but it's not. When it comes to the funnies, they aren't, and they're drawn out to an excruciating level. I've noticed this with all of Falcone's films. He plays a joke and insists on lingering on that joke for far too long. Even the appearance of Jason Bateman as Jerry the Crab does little to elevate this to any level out of the gutter where it belongs. The experience of watching this was akin to watching a tiger maul a full school bus in slow motion. There's a mention in the film that the super suits can't be washed, so they whiff a bit. Clearly, the film couldn't be washed either, because this stunk up my whole household watching it. Well, I'm glad you watched it and I didn't, Andy. And I think if there's some kind of uh, medal for film reviewers, <laughs> then having watched that film, then you deserve that, that medal. And you said uh, uh, it was a, a perfectly formed sandwich. What's the third film? So the third one is an Oscar-nominated documentary called The Mole Agent, which is available on BBC iPlayer as part of their Storyville season. Uh, this sees an elderly gent hired to go undercover in a care home after a client has expressed concern for her mother in there, believing that she's had items stolen and she may be mistreated. The film crew con like convinced the care home that they just want to do a documentary on the care home. And they want to focus on a new person coming into there to coincide with sending this secret agent in. The agent spy spends a few weeks in there documenting the day-to-day -day activities of life in the care home and seeking the truth as to where the items are going to and whether this person's mother's been mistreated. But the story ends up not being as straightforward as expected. And he also begins to form a friendship with some of the souls who are spending their last days in care in there. It's a documentary that has some wry wit, but a lot of heart. And you think you know where the true life events will go as you're watching it. But as with every good documentary, they capture the moments perfectly and it takes the whole thing in a different direction. And by the end of it, if you're not weeping, then you've lost all touch with humanity. Thoroughly recommend it. It's the Mole Agent. Search for Storyville on BBC iPlayer. It's in there. That sounds well worth watching. I uh, I watched the documentary Seaspiracy, which is an awful title, but a, a, an interesting documentary. And I, th I think I mentioned it last week. I'm, I'm not going to recommend it because I think if you are of a certain certain type of person who is already going to put their hands up and go, it's not going to change how I eat, then it, it's not going yeah. to change. I think it has a tendency to to preach to the converted a little bit, but it's, it's well worth watching and, and, and an eye opener. Okay, so we're into episode four of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and that takes us over the halfway mark. With a, an episode entitled The Whole World is Watching, we got to see, well, we got to see the real reasoning and what's going on in the head of John Walker, the new Captain America. So quickly for me, uh, I don't want to spend much time on it because we are racing towards the last two episodes. It's still all over the place as a series. I am enjoying it, and this was much better than than episode three for the great reveal of, of, of John Walker's character. This is a series about identity and, and what it means to carry the shield, Captain America's shield, and, and who is actually worthy of it. And it's quite clear who's actually worthy of it. But we've seen 
John Walker go from being uh, a charismatic, almost vulnerable guy who's just stepping up in episode two to what he's become by this one? The impatience and the temper and the fact that the stress and responsibility he's got for being Captain America and what that means to the point where, uh, a spoiler, that he's now taken the super soldier serum, which kind of hints that I think the next episode is going to be some sort of showdown between Winter Soldier and, and Falcon. Better episode than episode three. I'm liking it. I wish I was loving it and I want to love it, but it just seems to lack a direction and it's got an awful lot of work to do in these last two episodes. This was the episode that for me, it picked it up for me. It got me back on board. There was there was some momentum getting added into it. You've already mentioned Walker being played with his frustrations, uh, trying to fill this role that he clearly couldn't, and he takes the serum to give him the powers so they can he can become what he thinks that he needs to become, which leads to him doing something reckless, which results in him tipping over the edge. The closing moments set the stage for the next two parts, swiftly flipping the whole thing into focus. My problem overall, even though I really enjoyed this episode more than the previous couple of episodes, my problem overall in this series is the casting of Erin Kellyman as Carly. I just don't find her threatening, menacing, or convincing. She looks like she's permanently on the verge of crying, as though she's just been caught with her hands in the cookie jar and being told to sit on the naughty step. She doesn't sell anything. And she was the same when she appeared in Solo, um, a Star Wars story as one of the Resistance Rebellion starting founders. And she's just not got much of a presence to make her convincing in what's supposed to be a powerful role. It was this week that it really sewed home to me what wasn't clicking with me. And it was her as the kind of leader of this terrorist organization. She doesn't seem right in that role. And that That's makes it not work for me because uh, i i'm kind of the opposite with her which i think it's the fact that she is this sort of subdued every person uh who just now has taken the serum um that, that is working for me with her i think she's quite a charismatic character but as i said we're at episode four episode five and six which i believe are slightly longer still no sign of mephisto we'll um see how it all plays out we've got got two episodes for it to really turn itself around and there is rumor and it it is purely speculative at this point that there will be a season two because Sebastian Stan says he would do um, literally anything for uh, for Marvel at this stage. And uh, that worries me. Um, that's about <laughs> it for this week, Andy. Um, unless you've got anything happening on streaming. Yes. A quick roundup of just a, two films that are coming to streaming this week that I will be talking about next week. First of all, another Oscar-nominated film, Promising Young Woman, lands on Now and Sky this weekend. Carrie Mulligan playing Cassie, a smart and cunning young woman who lives a double life and finds an opportunity to exact revenge and get justice for a past trauma. And on Netflix, Love and Monsters. Dylan O'Brien is in a film set seven years after the monster apocalypse, which forced humanity to retreat underground. He reconnects via ra radio with his high school love, and he realises to live, he must leave the underground colony and venture to find Amy, his sweetheart, once more. Sounds like a nice little post-apocalyptic sci-fi monster film. I'm going to give that one a shot as well. I've been waiting for this for some time. I've heard very good things about it from, from people I know uh, who rated it very highly, so I'm, I am looking forward to that one. So that's those two to catch on streaming services. And that's about it for this week's show. But of course, before we go, Andy and I have uh, been reading, watching, enjoying a whole slew of different things in a segment we call 
our neat things. Andy, what has been your neat thing this week? So my neat thing this week, well, this is something that I've mentioned as part of the show quite a few times in a variety of ways. And that's the online service and app Letterboxd. Now, this is a tracker for whenever you watch a film. Instead of collecting those ticket stubs, you can go onto Letterboxd and say, I watched this on that date. And you can log a diary of everything that you see. You can rate them. You can review them. You can build up a social network of friends and family who are on there as well. So you can compare notes. You can share things. You can build lists. So if there's any films that you think, I really need to get around to watching them, you can add them into your watch list. Or create a list like the films of Quentin Tarantino. And as you watch them, rank them. It's got so much to do with the, in the free version. And if you pay the small amount per year to get the pro version, you open up the access to all the different stats and trackers that you can use to analyze how good your movie viewing has been. There's a world map tracker that I am working on filling green bit by bit by finding films from around the world. It links up with services to tell you where you can find films as well. So if you search for a film on there and click on it, it will tell you Netflix, Amazon, whatever. It's a great little device. Anyone who's a fan of films and loves keeping tabs on what they've been watching and wants to know at the end of the year how much of their life they've just wasted watching films this year, get Letterboxd installed. Like I say, there's a completely free version. And once you've used a free version for a few weeks, I guarantee you will want to open up the extra functions and you will pay the small cost for a yearly subscription. Well worth checking out. My neat thing, uh, which is currently playing on BBC iPlayer, I think it appeared on, on, the, on the BBC, uh, and that's season one of the terror um, which is a, as a horror series inspired by a true story uh, the terror centers on a royal navy's perilous voyage into uncharted territory where the boat becomes trapped in ice it's based on a 2007 novel by dan simmons and was talked about for some time as being a film by ridley scott but ridley scott brought it to uh, the small screen instead. Well, I think it's the adaption is working out much better because the books, which were which were great, do go into uh, the fact that there's a, a true story behind this and, and spend an awful lot of time talking about how the Royal Navy in 1845 and 1848 uh, operated. And it spends a, a lot of detail on that. And the series has managed to, to convey that, but also bring out the drama. It's a fantastic cast. Uh, Kieran Hines as Franklin and the great, and the reason for watching it really, Jared Harris as uh, uh, Captain Francis Crozier. At this stage, because I know the book, uh, I know what the terror is, but in the series I'm about halfway through and it's and it's sort of, it's slowly starting to reveal what the real horror is. Fantastic series. There's been a second season in the US, but at the moment on BBC iPlayer, the first season of The Terror is well worth a watch. Fantastic. I'll um, add that into my watch list. Yeah, you should. It's right up your street. It's If you want a uh, true life adventure and a monster movie, then this is for you. And this episode is for you. We hope you've enjoyed it. We always enjoy delivering the film file, don't we, Andy? Oh, love it. This is the highlight of my week, to sit and have this chat and share it with the world. So please join us again next week where we'll be back for another film file. Andy, anything planned for the next week? <laughs> film watching. We've also started to have some more meetings around the plans to reopen the cinema at the back end of May. So it's all starting to ramp up. It's all starting to get positive. And I'm going to continue doing my daily walks to uh, keep my physical fitness back up. Fantastic. Well, we'll see you next week. 
But in the meantime, you're so sly, but so am I. <laughs>